picture this scene. It's 1972, a warm January night, a little after 10.30 in the evening. A man walks up to the TWA counter and asks for a ticket on TWA Flight 2, leaving for New York City in less than 30 minutes. He's dressed very well, with a gold Rolex watch on one wrist. He asks for a first-class ticket, of course. He pays cash. Now, this is a military dragnet, and yes, this guy has been court-martialed, so you will hear about that in the coming story. Now, to continue with his story, he enters the metal scanner, but it doesn't alert because the power cord isn't working. No matter, the guy at the gate does not think the well-dressed man with the cast on his arm could be a threat to anybody. Probably got the broken arm skiing at some fancy resort in the mountains by the look of him. TWA Flight 2 was a Boeing 707. Some of the electrical work on this very aircraft was performed by my Uncle Carl at the Seattle plant when it was constructed. Connie Tokarski, the flight attendant, greeted the man with the ticket that had uh, the name Reuben on it. He took his seat in first class by the window. A short time later, a young lady needed help putting her gift wrap packages in the overhead bin and the well-dressed man helped her store her gifts. He smiled and was friendly and asked her if she was going to have a second Christmas and she said that she was. For all his calm, Reuben had decided that he was going to win and win big or be dead. He had in the past tried to kill himself with a gun, a knife, and a rope. All failed. Like most suicides victims, he was glad he failed. Such a waste of life. No, this time he was going to die. Uh, you know, it'd be worth it in pursuit of the big brass ring. If he was to die today, it would not be by his own hand. He'd make the corrupt system kill him. Rejected by his family for being a loser, he would show them and the world just how big a man he could be. His wife and son would see that he was not all talk, but a man of action. He was in action today as he sat looking out the window of row 8 in that TWA 707 passenger jet. The plane took off heading for New York City. After he ate a hearty first class meal, he asked Connie, the flight attendant, for some paper and envelopes to write a very important letter. She returned and gave him a TWA writing pad and some envelopes. On an envelope he wrote, you are being hijacked. Act naturally and lead the way to the cabin. I have a pistol and there is a bomb in the aircraft. After writing this missive, he used a, a razor to cut off the cast on his arm where he kept a 32 caliber Walther PPK and a full clip of ammunition. Same gun that I carry around almost every day. Uh, same caliber and everything. He cut himself with the blade, you know, that he was using to cut off his cast and he left blood on his note. He put the gun in his belt and went to find Connie. He found her talking to her friend, another flight attendant named Diana Pierce. Diana asked him how his arm was and he handed Connie the note. She read it and all the color went from her face as she gave it to Diana, who read it and gave it back to Connie. They both stared at the well-dressed man. He pulled back his coat just enough to expose the pistol and for the two women to see and while saying, I'm serious, let's get to the cockpit now. He was led into the cockpit. Guess uh, things were a lot different back then in 1972. 
Uh, captain Ray Schreiber was at the controls. This would be the captain's second hijacking of his career. The well-dressed man had in his, uh, his gun trained right on the captain's head. He explained in a cool and calm manner that he was going to be in control. He ordered the crew to keep their hands visible and he put the plane on autopilot and give him a radio set. He strapped himself into the seat behind the captain and got on the radio. He called Chicago Center and informed them that TWA-2 was a hijacked plane. Radio went deathly silent. The crew sat very still and all was quiet for a time. A voice came back on the air. The man told Chicago Control exactly what he wanted. It was to speak to the President of the United States. Nathaniel Barron, a Miami lawyer, in cash, he wanted $306,800 to be delivered to him at the Kennedy Airport. Release Angela Davis from jail and George Padilla. He wanted the people released from custody in less than three hours. If you never heard of Angela Davis, she was a black liberation person who used terrorism and murder to get her way and didn't quite work out. And she went to prison and then eventually was found not guilty, I think. He got back on the radio after a few minutes and informed Chicago Center that he had a gun and a bomb and he wasn't kidding. The U.S. government had stolen 300000 of his dollars and he wanted it back. He told them to tell the president that he was Garrett Brock Trapnell and the FBI could pull his jacket and see that he was serious and they had better get moving or he'd blow the plane and all of them to kingdom come. Kind of reminds me of way back when when the prisoners would tell me, pull my jacket, CO, and see who I am. Yeah, whatever. The FBI did pull his jacket and the agent reading it could see they were dealing with no ordinary hijacker. Trapnell had a jacket with the FBI, several dozen states, uh, they had a jacket, and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the cops in the Bahamas, and Panama each had one, as did Interpol. He had been born January 31, 1938 in Brockton, Massachusetts, son of Walter Scott Kennedy Trapnell and Elizabeth Brock Trapnell. He had robbed seven banks in Canada, stole over a hundred grand of jewels in the Bahamas, had been arrested dozens of times, put in jails and mental institutions, been examined by judges and mental health professionals, and hired over 30 lawyers. His first arrest came at just 14 when he stole some shoes at the Balboa Yacht Club in Panama City, Panama. He had married six times before he had hijacked his plane. The FBI, Jacket, on him was one of the largest the agent had ever seen on a man under 40 years old. He was a former soldier with a grand family military history. His father had attended Annapolis Naval Academy and was a retired Navy commander. His uncle was General John Hall Trapnell who had been with General Douglas MacArthur in the Philippines and had been captured by the Japanese Imperial Army when that nation was invaded. Brock had joined the Army in 1955 and had served with the elite 187th Airborne Regimental Combat Team at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. He was discharged in 1957 after being court-martialed for a variety of offenses like forging passes, going AWOL, etc. 
He even attempted suicide by shooting himself in the belly. Now, oddly enough, when I was an MP in the Army, I responded to a suicide where the man shot himself in the belly twice with a 32 automatic. I rode in the ambulance with the man while he sobbed in pain, coughed up a bullet, and spit it out on the ambulance floor. This man died from his wounds. Trapnell lived from his. A year after Trapnell enlisted again under a false name, this time he was the very best. He made corporal in under a year and was appointed to assist drill sergeants in training troops. What he saw around him filled him with anger. He felt soldiers were using the army property for their personal use, even stealing some of it while the officers and the NCOs were bribed to look the other way. While serving at Fort Ord, California, the army found out about his fraud, court-martialed him again, and put him in the stockade this time. In the stockade, he was a management problem and was put in the hole. There he found a small bit of metal and slashed his wrists. They next put him in a mental hospital in San Francisco. Finally, in March of 1958, his sentence was done and he was discharged again. Rather than lay low, he decided to head to Cuba and fight with the forces of Fidel Castro. What he got was a stretch in Baptista's prison system. One fine day, he was taken from his cell at dawn, tied to a post, and faced a firing squad with no blindfold. At the word fire, all he heard was clicks of empty hammers. The firing squad busted out in laughter. He was put on a bus and taken to the airport and sent back to Miami. He had proven twice that he would kill himself. His declaration of get his way or die was no hollow threat. He meant it. Most importantly, the FBI knew he meant it. Before Trapnell had even landed in New York's Kennedy Airport, he had demanded the president sign a pardon and give it delivered to his lawyer in Miami. A hijacked plane landed at JFK at 7.15 in the morning, just a few minutes late. Dozens of FBI agents, TWA bigwigs, and the FAA were on the ground and on high alert. Trapnell's lawyer was on a plane from Miami and would be in New York soon. They were pulling out all the stops to safeguard the 92 passengers of flight TWA-2. The plane parked on runway 4 left near the water, all alone and vulnerable. The passengers, ignorant they had been hijacked, gathered their stuff and got ready to depart the aircraft. Only two of the flight attendants knew why they were parked so far from the terminal. They all just wondered what was going on. No panic, but a bit of frustration and confusion in the main cabin. While the plane sat on the ground, Trapnell ordered the crew to pass out free drinks to the passengers. Fat 40-something FBI agent arrived on the cold, windswept runway with a telephone headset and not wearing a jacket or tie. His name was Bill Gamble, and his job was to wear the hijacker down, delay until the suspect gave up and quit. They didn't know Trapnell like I did. He's a lot of things, but a quitter isn't one of them. The negotiator did get Trapnell to release 94 people on board the aircraft, even allowing the door to be opened and the stairs to be rolled up to the door. The people exited and walked to a nearby set of buses that took them to the airport. Less people were less chances of a problem, was Trapnell's thinking. Besides, the FBI have his personal word that there'd be no tricks or rescue attempts. Trapnell thought a man's word was his bond. After that, a new man was on the phone with Trapnell, David Hubbard, 
a Dallas psychiatrist who had written a book on skyjacking and skyjackers. He had extensive interviews with Trapnell and had a, written a book based partly on those interviews. Trapnell had read the book and thought it was a travesty. All he wanted was George Bedilla released from the Dallas jail. He made that clear to the doctor who was trying to stall for time and wear Trapnell down. By now the fuel trucks had arrived and Trapnell wanted to be back in the air where it would be impossible to get to him. The lawyer was on his way to JFK by plane and would arrive in an hour and a half. George Padilla was released from the jail and on the way to Dr. Hubbard's office where he could talk to Trapnell by phone. The doctor kept trying to distract Trapnell and keep him occupied. The FBI agent was still in his shirt sleeves standing on the runway in the cold wind. A lot to keep track of for sure, but Trapnell was in the zone. It was like he did this sort of thing every week. He kept his demands and refused to be distracted. The doctor wanted to know why Trapnell had taken the plane. Was it for the money or to make a statement? Well, it was both. In a recorded conversation, Trapnell, who was very well acquainted with the county's correctional system, went on a tirade. He said, These correctional institutions and rehabilitation centers, they don't even try to correct anybody. They don't build anything. They don't build character. They don't build judgment. You rob a man of five years of his life, he comes back into society without having anything left for himself. Yeah, he kind of has a point. The plane refueled. Trapnell told the captain to take the plane up. Just before leaving the ground, Trapnell had a short conversation with his old pal George Padilla. Unlike the woman Trapnell demanded a release for, Padilla was a small-time robber and a thug that Trapnell had met in jail five or six years before. Padilla was from Cuba, and like many refugees who came to the U.S., he had a hard time fitting in. He went back to old habits of robbery and theft. He hit it off with Trapnell. He told Padilla he was going to be on a plane soon, and if he wasn't, to let him know about it. All this time, the FBI agent on the runway would break in now and then with a plea that Trapnell give himself up. He would not get hurt. He'd get good treatment, etc. It just got to be annoying. Plus, he could see a truck parked on the runway and a boat on the water that had no reason to be there. He was feeling trapped. He would feel a lot better once the plane was in the air again. Fed up with all the stalling and back in the air, Trapnell made his demands again. He'd have all his demands met or he'd dive the plane into the JFK terminal in four hours when the fuel ran out. This threat put the FAA, TWA, and the FBI into high gear. It was decided that Trapnell would be killed as soon as an opportunity presented itself. Finally, the doctor talked him into flying to Dallas to pick up his friend at the airport uh, there, and it would save you know a lot of time. He also talked him into getting a new crew that could fly overseas and was fresh. The current crew could not fly many more hours as they were considered a safety hazard under current FAA regulations. After landing, the fuel and the electric truck were waiting along with the relief crew. There were six new crew members, which included James Nelson and Gene Fry, who were in fact FBI agents posing as a co-pilot and navigator. Both were armed with revolvers hidden in the, on their person. Trapnell had the old co-pilot shake them down before they entered the plane in view of him as he stood inside the plane. Then Trapnell saw another man wearing a captain's uniform. He sensed the trap. Agent James Nelson knew he had been discovered. 
He pulled the thirty-eight from his pocket and shot at Trapnell three times. Two hit him in the hand and arm, and one passed over his head as he fell. Agent G. Fry leapt onto uh, Trapnell and held him down while Nelson picked up the gun that had fallen from Trapnell's hand. A doctor and an ambulance were rushed to the plane. Trapnell was given a sedative while the doctor tried to stop the bleeding. The last thing he heard before drifting into unconsciousness was an FBI agent sitting in the back of the ambulance with him who said in a low tone, I hope you die, you son of a bitch. The newspapers were full of the crime and the criminal who pulled off another hijacking. By 1972, hijackings were common. Just a short bit on the news and gone. But this was a different one because the criminal was different. The FBI had a rap sheet as long as his broken and bleeding arm. He had been compared to James Bond in the papers. The FBI agent who arrested him five years before told the paper how he had found him in a hotel room with two women, a chest full of fillets, and the finest champagne available in the city. He even had CIA credentials and people believed he was a spy working for the U.S. government. Trapnell was the most charming man I have ever met. He was a fun-loving guy. I think that most of the men in K-Unit liked him. Other prisoners have told me that he was a great comedian and could keep them laughing all day. I did observe this quality in him. He smiled a lot, and despite his circumstances of living in K-Unit when I met him, he was always happy and, you know, seemed to be just happy to be alive. But under all of it, I could tell he was always observing me, and there was an undercurrent of him collecting information he could use for nefarious purposes. I could see that it would be very easy to fall prey to his spell, let my guard down, and find myself in serious trouble. Now this podcast is about Trapnell's crime that got him sent up for life. He's a much more interesting character than that. His life of crime is almost unbelievable. He's a perfect example of how a man with a very high IQ can use his smarts to do a lot of evil. He is so interesting, in fact, I believe I'll uh, do some more episodes on this guy in the future. I've only met a couple of other uh, who fought in the Cuban Revolution and found them all to be very interesting characters. If you've enjoyed this, by all means, subscribe and uh, stay updated with our weekly podcasts that I release. And if you want to comment or write to me directly, you can do so. It's militarydragnet at mail.com. And as always, thanks for listening.